animal. Talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Cy Montgomery, the best-selling author of 31 nonfiction books for adults and children. These include The Soul of an Octopus and The Good Good Pig. Her new book, The Hawk's Way, Fierce Encounters with Beauty, is adapted and expanded from a chapter in Montgomery's 2010 collection, Birdology. A nifty 79-page micro-memoir, The Hawk's Way chronicles Montgomery's journey into the world of raptors and those who train and fly them, with a particular emphasis on the hawk. She's clearly enraptured by raptors and falconry, at one point writing the, quote, Birds will show me a kind of relationship I had never known was possible with any living being, end quote. Which, if you read even just a few of Montgomery's books, jumps off the page as a striking assertion. We'll hear about her experiences with those birds and some of the personal conflicts she grappled with during forays into training and building relationships with these hawks. Given that much of the activity is focused on hunting, when I speak with Simon Montgomery in a few moments here, on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Lainey Jones, the Florida-born, Nashville-based singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist who issues a new album, Stories Up High, next week and plays an album release show at Hooch and Hive here in good old Tampa on May 18th, next Wednesday. She grew up surrounded by animals. Her parents raised kangaroos, wallabies, and other exotic creators on their 10-acre farm. More on Lainey and those animals later in today's show. So we're going to try to get uh, Sai on the line. Didn't reach her just before going on the air, so we're going to try her again now. And we'll hopefully be back with Sai Montgomery on Talking Animals on WMNF. Okay, we've got Cy. Yay, things are looking up, folks. We've got Cy Montgomery on the line. So again, we um, already did our introduction, but we'll just do a little bit more in case people want to 
be sure to talk with Sai. So with a reminder that I do invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Sai Montgomery back on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Sai. Good morning. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear oh, me? Good, good, good. Yeah, I'm sorry that we had this bizarre thing. I'm going to blame it on the mouse that I had to release this morning. Okay. Um, I think he must have taken the phone off the hook or something. Well, I'm sure. That seems like a reasonable explanation to me. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I really uh, enjoyed the book, um, which is chock full of information and adventures. And, and by the way, is tailor-made, really, for those who feel like... These days, hey, I'm just too re- uh, busy to read a book. You almost certainly have time to read this book. So um, it may be a small book, but it's loaded with big ideas, many of which I hope to explore later on. But for now, my question simply is, why raptors? Why raptors? Well, years ago, my husband was listening to the radio, the best source of information that we can possibly imagine, as you know. Indeed. And, and he heard an ad for the New Hampshire School of Falconry, which was brand new then. This was back in, like, 2005. And he knew that, you know, I love any chance to meet any animal up close and personal. So he told me about it. I called up, and I was Nancy Cowan's first student, along with my friend, Celinda Jacoin, at her new New Hampshire School of Falconry. And the minute I met the bird that she put on my fist... I was absolutely enthralled and could not wait to learn more, so I was hooked. There's something about a hawk that I think it's absolutely the the distillation of pure wildness that you feel like, you know, that you're looking directly into the sun. You feel like you're looking at this awesome power and grace and strength and ferocity. Yeah, and you almost can't look away. Well, well, we'll get into that because that seems to be like a, a part of a sort of a predominant theme throughout throughout the hawk's way is just that that ferocity and just the intensity and how you I think we're sort of uh, bowled over in, in good and sometimes uh, c- conflicting ways, but. Still, despite it being kind of a new adventure locally and, and always being up for something animal-related, I mean, I, I can't claim to have read all of your books, but I think I have read many of them. And I tend to think of a Cy Montgomery book. is a test of the emergency alert system. Relationship with hawks was totally different than the relationship that I have built with any other animal, even animals as different from us as octopuses. And here's why. Many Many relationships with animals, once you've convinced them that you're not going to eat them and they're not going to eat you, starts with building trust through gentle touch. Well, hawks don't want you to touch them at all. And hawks really don't want much of what we are glad to offer other animals. Your relationship with them 
is built entirely on whether or not they deem you worthy of acting as their junior hunting partner. <laughs> and I am so not a hunter. I mean, my mother was a hunter. She used to hunt squirrels to eat them because she lived in Arkansas and they needed to, to eat squirrels. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't need to eat squirrels. I've been a vegetarian for <laughs> over 40 years. Um, so I've never had the desire to take someone's life so that I could eat them because I could have a nice broccoli and satisfy that. Sure. But this is what a hawk really is built to do. And it's it's not trying to 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 hunt its prey to to you know amuse itself and it, it although hawks have free will they don't have the ability to choose not to eat live prey. This is what they're made to do, and there's no evil in it, and there's no malice in it, but they do love the hunt, and they love it above anything else, and they excel at it, and their ability to do it with their exquisite senses and their their power and grace is something beautiful and something holy and something utterly natural, but something that I had never participated in before in my life and didn't think that I would want to. But once I met my first hawk up close and personal, I just love that thing so much that its desire became my own. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I mean, it's so interesting because um, I was just so struck by a number of things you wrote and, and that you did uh, as recounted in the book. And, for example, I, I mentioned this in the opening of the show when, when you weren't uh, uh, with us at that point. But when you wrote, birds will show me a kind of relationship I had never known was possible with any living being. I mean, again, anyone familiar with you and your work might be flabbergasted by this assertion. So can you explain a bit about that or elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, um, I guess it was kind of like, you know, when we, when we watch nature shows, which I'm sure you do as I do. Right, and you're like watching the life of the wildebeest, and you're rooting for that baby wildebeest to survive, and the mom to survive, and you know for the whole herd to survive, and they're running the gauntlet of crocodiles eating them, and cheetahs chasing them, and lions chasing them, and you're rooting for the wildebeest. But then the next night, it's the life of the lion, <laughs> and now the lion is raising its its cubs, and um, you're rooting for those those baby lions and their mother. So you kind of switch teams there. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, trying to get yourself into another's headspace. Because isn't this really what we want when we get to know somebody, when, when we start to love somebody? We want to know, you know, what is it in your life that gives you delight and fulfillment and animates you? And for a hawk... That's what it wants. That's what it is. It is like a a hunting machine, a thinking, feeling hunting machine. Yeah. And all of its graces are sprung free by what what falconers call Yarrick, that deep burning desire to to capture prey. Yeah. Well, it really, uh, even just in what you've said here, but certainly in many parts of the book, I mean, it really uh, just kind of radiates off the pages in many cases that uh, as much as you've done uh, to get to know and write about and, and explore 
so many animals over so many years that this was a, a striking and singular experience. Yeah, it really, it really was. And what it kind of, what it taught me, as I looked back on the experience, as I was writing the introduction to this book before it came out, what it really taught me was this kind of selfless, non-transactional way to love. Because you can't expect from a hawk what you expect from your your spouse or your parent or your, your dog or your cat or your horse or even your friend who's an octopus. You, you can't get back the kind of affection that humans yearn for, but their magnificence is enough. It's more than enough. And the love that you feel for a hawk, this selfless love, is kind of what the Greeks called agape. The, the kind, the highest kind of love, the, the love that expects nothing in return. And it's, it's very liberating to be able to love like that. Yeah. So did you, did you feel that through this uh, uh, journey into the world of raptors and falconry that uh, it made you rethink and sort of recalibrate a number of, th- of things that even though, again, you'd spent so much time with so many animals, it just felt like this was kind of a uh, thing that maybe rewired some of your some of your uh, synapses a bit. Yeah, it, it widened, I think, um, and strengthened the ability, my ability to love, I think. Because, you know, so many relationships that we have, and I'm celebrating all these other kinds of love that we have. I mean, the kind of love that you have that the Greeks called philios, our, our friendships. You expect a, a reciprocity there. Um, eros, you expect your, your lover, your spouse, your partner to love you back, and you, ex- you expect that romantic fulfillment. Um, the, the same is is true with storage, the kind of love that you expect and have the right to expect from your offspring or your parents. And there's nothing wrong with wanting something back, um, but not wanting something back. Being, being able to feel love so bright, so hot, so incandescent that you don't expect anything back except to be in the presence of that creature. That is terrific it is really terrific and when i go into any relationship with an animal i try not to expect a particular thing what i want often is to be completely surprised and if you have expectations it can wreck the surprise you don't want to be disappointed if your expectations aren't met and you you don't want to miss a completely other thing if the animal has something completely new in store for you well, getting to know hawks, I think, helped me hone that ability to approach an animal completely open to whatever they are going to show me. Hmm. Yeah, I want to I delve a little bit further in that moment, but just for folks who may just be tuning in, let me uh, tell you 
Phil, and this is Talking Animals on WNFI. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Simon Montgomery, the prolific author of bestsellers such as The Soul of an Octopus and The Good Good Pig. Her new book is The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty, which chronicles her journey into the world of raptors and those who train and fly them, including Montgomery herself. If you'd like to ask her a question or offer a comment about raptors, about falconry, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, backing up a little bit, size. so when your husband spotted that thing and said, hey, there's uh, this thing opening up here, uh, because you're always, I guess, up for an animal adventure, was it just sort of uh, almost presumed that you would uh, explore this? Because I, I wonder if it's, if, if the fact that it was falconry, it was raptors, uh, if that made any difference, or that you kind of have this, well, I guess sort of characterized as this kind of animal-oriented wanderlust that's, that's driven so many of your adventures in books that you just thought, well, hey, next up, I'm going to explore this. Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I, I did not think it through to, to realize that this was about hunting. Um, to me, it was about hawks, mm. and <laughs> I didn't realize that the thing the hawk would want me to do with him or her was was actually go on a hunt. Yeah. So, um, and by the time I, I figured that out, <laughs> it was too late. I was already crazy in love. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's it seems super intense. Um, really from the get-go, and then there's all kinds of other uh, sort of risks and, and things that we'll get into in, in a moment or two uh, that happen or that can happen with uh, you recount with you and with others that, um, I mean, they are they are fierce, as, as the title suggests, but uh, at times, I don't know if unpredictable is quite right, but, I mean, one false move clearly and uh, some some fairly awful things can happen. Let's we have a caller holding. Let's see if we can get them involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Simon Montgomery. Hey, yeah, uh, I just have a short story and a question. I uh, I saw the guy at the uh, canoe launch feeding a hawk. He would throw a piece of meat in the air, and the hawk would come and take him. Well, I lived out in the country, and I had a hawk in my yard, and I I started feeding him, and it took a long time for him to trust me. I definitely understand the woman's fascination with him and, and how long it takes to gain his trust. He uh, eventually would stand right on top of the pole and almost let me get real close to him to beat him. But uh, are hawks territorial? Sorry, are you still on the line? I wasn't sure if you said anything after territorial. It seemed like he, the call might have dropped out. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to know, are hawks territorial? Oh, you're asking. Sorry, I thought you were declaring oh, that. Sorry. sorry. They sure are when they're nesting. And you'll get yelled at and swooped upon if you approach a nest too closely. And this time of year, I just got yelled at by a wild hawk two days ago. Um <laughs> Um, and normally they aren't they aren't going to hurt you. But the one the one kind of hawk that you really have to watch out for um, is in deep forest, and it's a goshawk. And those uh, goshawks will actually not just warn you; they will they will attack if you're too close to their nest. Strictly as a uh, invasion of their territory. Right. It's so cool that he he got to know this. Um, what a what a great call. <laughs> have, have you ever seen a nighthawk? 
Uh, Sai, he uh, said, you, have you ever seen a Nighthawk? Your, your connection's not great, sir. We do, we're probably going to need to move on, but uh, we'll see if, if, if Sai wants to answer that, then we are going to move on. Got a bit of a noisy connection here. I have not. Um, the raptors that I see at night, though, are owls, and they're pretty amazing to, to watch. No one does falconry with owls, though, because no one seems to want to hunt at night with uh, for mice. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a limited... Well, a, uh, a, a, a nighthawk go, goes high in the air, and then it dives, and when it dives, it makes sort of a, um, almost like a sonic boom. And when wow. it cuts back, it's unbelievable if you ever see one. And I've only ever seen them way out in the country... And in the evening when it's just getting dark, I think they're chasing bugs or something, but pretty incredible. They, they sit in pine trees during the day. One, one last quick question. One last quick question. Then we're going to move on, sir. Are you still feeding that, the original bird you mentioned? No, sir. I had to move away, but, uh, I definitely missed, uh, uh seeing the bird because he would come every single day. Yeah. On a telephone pole. Sounds like a pretty profound, wow. uh, experience. So, uh. Well, at least you had it during that time. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. No, that's oh. uh, unusual, I think. Uh, so, so, Sai, tell me, um, I mean, it just, uh, again, one of the things that's, that's laced throughout the book, I think, is that there are uh, surprises and or challenges uh, pretty much regularly. Um so you, you you talked about, for example, how most animals that you've written about or had any kind of relationship with, part of that came through uh, a response to touch, whereas that's not at all what figures in to uh, to raptors. Um, but what's it like to spend time on purpose with a creature that at any moment uh, could attack and seriously injure you, especially, again, if something happens to go sideways? Boy, well, one, it makes you very eager not to make a mistake. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and what's interesting, I, you just made me think of this. I mean, hawks are kind of like, some of us live with people like that. Um, people with uh, quick tempers or people with a problem with alcohol, for example, mm. can be like that. Um, and... I I grew up in a situation in which I had to watch out for someone's temper quite a bit, and uh, maybe this was why I I I just was like, okay, now I'll I'll just do it this way. Um, just the privilege, though, of being so close to a bird that most of us most of us when we see a hawk, it's pretty far away. I mean, we're lucky to see it if it's perching on a telephone pole or in a tree. Yeah. Most of the time when we see them, um, we, we see them on migration and they're a speck in the sky in the fall when you get these like enormous numbers, sometimes tens of thousands of birds wheeling in the sky in the fall, flying over places um, like, well, near us we have packed Monadnock where all these birds funnel through. But to be able to see someone up that close and look into those enormous eyes and see those eyes gathering so much of life that we miss because their their eyes are they have superpowers of, of sight that we can't even describe or imagine. They see colors we don't know about, they see in detail that we 
you know, would need a microscope to see. Um, just being near that, it kind of puts you in a state of of high alert, not panic alert, but it it makes you super careful, and it makes you too want to absorb every single detail around you. So, I mean, it, it, having a hawk on your arm, that is not the time to be thinking about Chapter 12 or what you're going <laughs> to order at the restaurant that night. Yeah. You are very focused, hyper-focused on that bird and that bird's needs and movements. And I've, I've, never, been, I've never been hurt um, by a hawk. It's when you relax, generally, that you, that you get hurt. Uh, my falconry instructor, Nancy Cowan, God rest her soul, to whom the book is dedicated. dedicated. She yeah. died in January. But what an uh, incredible person she was. Um, even she, in her long, long experience, has been hurt by hawks. Yeah. Um, she's been footed, as it's, as it's called. She was bitten in the face the very first Within the first five minutes of our first lesson. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it was like, oh, holy cow, what is I getting herself into if this is what That's the instructor what uh, experiences? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 And it, but she didn't think anything of it. I mean, it didn't bother her one bit. And so Linda and I were, we were horrified that this nice person we just met was bleeding all over the place. I mean, it was a hell of a bite. Yeah. Uh, but she didn't care at all. What Nancy cared about was she wasn't going to make a mistake that was going to hurt the hawk. And that's something people have to be very aware of. When a hawk is on your fist, all kinds of things can happen to that hawk if you are not careful. If something happens to you, that's too bad. But if something happens to the hawk, that's even worse. If you're walking around with a hawk on your fist and you run into a stick and it pokes the hawk in the eye, I mean, that could be the end of the hawk. Yeah. Even... You know, a wind that lifts a wing and twists a feather can hurt the hawk. Um, if you're hunting with the hawk, your hawk, just like wild hawks, can come to grief. Um, not only be hurt by its prey or hurt in its pursuit of prey, but your hawk can be hunted by another hawk yeah. higher up above it and yeah. can die. So this is all, like, really... Yeah. There is there is a lot to uh, be mindful of. It sounds like at every every moment, and uh, like you say, it's just fraught with risk and, and it's super intense. And uh, if you're not concentrating 100, uh, percent something's going to go wrong, and it could go horribly wrong. Let's take another call or two. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Simon Montgomery. I, uh, what a great show and what a great guest. I got to tell you, I've. Uh, I'm a native Florida and one of an endangered species, so I've lived here my entire life. And uh, I'm an observer of nature and, um, you know, actually I like nature and animals better than I like people. <clears throat> so I have a couple of hawk things to tell you. The first one was, I used to work for, I don't even remember the guy, but you probably do, Burt Wall with the Wildlife Rescue. I was one of uh, the volunteers for them. And they sent me to go get a hawk at uh, uh, a, a baseball field where the hawk, hawk had gotten caught into the netting uh, oh, behind the batting cage. Mm. So I went and I extricated the hawk from that. With, without really much problem, I had a nice big leather glove, but the hawk was 
quite happy to be removed from that. And I examined it and deemed it to be healthy, and I knew it just wanted to go. So I let it go. But I got all kinds of grief from Burt Wall about letting the hog go, saying I should have brought it in. It wasn't my place to make the determinations, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, it's a wild animal. It wants to be free. I set it free. That's the end of it. That's Job is done. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I also, I've lived in the same place now for like 31 years, and I have woods everywhere. I have a wolf. I've had her since she was three months old, and she'll be 14 on the July 1st. She and I go for walks in the woods all the time, and the hawks use us to help them hunt. Wow! Well, whenever we go out, we always scare up things. So they're following us, watching us, and collecting the things that we might scare up. And I've seen so much about hawks. I've seen... You know, and them eating snakes, they eat insects, they eat, they, they, they pick up all kinds of things. They're phenomenal, and they have that great eyesight. And then the last part of my little story is I have rain barrels around my house, and um, a, a fledgling hawk, or I guess, you, I don't know if you call it a fledgling or not, uh, a young hawk had gone into the barrel to get a lizard that was floating in there, and the hawk got stuck. And I kept seeing this hawk, uh, this uh, you know, the, the parent hawk out there, making noise and running around the barrel and all that stuff. I finally went out there and I found a little hawk. I got it out of there, let it dry off its wings and set it free. And it was my friend for the longest time. I don't know what wow. happened to it, but, you know, uh, <laughs> saving that little hawk was uh, uh, something really special. Uh, I mean, I, I, I never really, you know, it wasn't about holding it. It would come. I'd leave it a piece of meat. I'd do all kinds of things for it. But um, it, it, it always knew me and I knew it. Wow, wow. That's, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing all this. This is really uh, fascinating stuff, and I appreciate your call. We're going to move fascinating on. Fascinating what your guys, what she, all the work she's been doing. For sure. Yeah, thank you for doing Okay, thank you so much for your call. Thank what you. a hawk hero. For sure. That's, uh, boy, that's a jam-packed uh, call, if, uh, if you ask me. Um, yeah. We've got some other folks holding, and we'll get them involved hopefully shortly. But um, just occurs to me, you made reference to kind of uh, a bird being on your glove. But it might be really interesting if you could um, describe what it's like to have a raptor fly to your glove, if you could just describe that experience. Oh, wow. Well, there's some people that find it alarming to see a, a, a hawk flying with those big, strong feet and their curved obsidian talons yeah. so near your face, um, particularly since at one time... Our ancestors, our hominid ancestors, were hunted and killed by large hawks. So I can see some people being disturbed by this, but for me, it was unbelievably thrilling to have a creature like this choose to come toward me. And even though hawks are really, all like all birds, they're light creatures. They're, they're full of air sacs, and their feathers actually weigh more than their skeletons. But because the hawk is, is coming towards you at speed, when it lands, it smacks on your glove with surprising force. And you can feel, too, the squeeze of those strong feet. It doesn't hurt, and you're wearing a glove, so, you know, the talons aren't going to hurt you. But you're aware of the power of that creature. Yeah. And in the book, I wrote that it was like holding on your hand an eclipse or a lightning storm, or a waterfall. 
Yeah. Well, there's another analogy you made that I want to get into in a sec, but let's get one more call involved for now at least. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ty Montgomery. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead, please. Um, I totally appreciate the guest's experience and passion, but maybe she can address the fact that some of us have a different take on falconry, and she probably knows this, but uh, yes, a hawk may be a feeling hunting machine, so why not let it be just that without human control or manipulations? Um, because raptors or hawks may not enjoy being confined for days or exercised in a, a run of, or, or trained solely at the will of a human. And in some cases, eggs are stolen from nests. There's videos showing that they don't take them. They're not supposed to take them all, but, but people do do that. So uh, uh, cannot deep love for the hawks occur, or any raptors occur without being controlled and c- confined b- by a human, just allowing them to be free. Thank you. Thanks for your yeah, call. I, I, I really appreciate the caller's sentiments there, and she's absolutely right. Of course, we can. you don't have to um, have a hawk on your, your fist to love them. Um, I was... I faced this when Nancy asked me to be her apprentice because to be an apprentice, you have to capture a bird of the year in New Hampshire. You have to get a wild hawk who's living free, a youngster, and capture it and take it into captivity against its will. And I thought, good God, could I do that? But then she told me that 80% of young raptors, which is the age class that you have to take, you have to take a bird that was born that year in the fall on migration, 80% of those birds die that before they reach their first birthday. Most falconers, when they catch that, um, that red-tailed hawk, has to be a red tail, has to be a bird of the year, most of them let that bird go. And the other thing that, that I discovered is no matter where you got your hawk, at any point, when you're out with your hawk, if you are letting it fly and letting it hunt, it can leave you forever. It has free will to leave. And they don't have the Stockholm Syndrome that keeps so many you know, people with abusive spouses. They will just up and leave. Yeah. Um, they, they don't depend on you for food. Um, they don't depend on you for anything. It's just the young birds that benefit when we, when we take them into captivity. And what she says, too, I mean, she's absolutely right that there, there are bad falconers out there. There certainly are, just like there's bad parents and bad dog owners. Um, but falconers, as Nancy pointed out, have had a lot to do with the restoration of animals like the peregrine falcon uh, to the wild. Those were raised in captivity by falconers who, who knew because of a 5,000-year-old history of people hunting with hawks. They knew how to raise these birds, and they knew how to, to train, help them learn how to hunt and then release them. Mm. And without falconers, that restoration would not have happened. Um, so while I totally appreciate 
what she's what she's talking about, and I'm grateful that she she brought it up. Yeah, that was um, what Nancy told me. Really, uh, really made a difference in my my understanding what what falconry when it's done right, like everything else, when it's done right, um, it can be a, a really restorative, wonderful partnership. And like the man who called a little earlier, finding that. You know, he he had hawks who lived totally in the wild, who chose to have him and his dog as a, as a hunting partner. Yeah, um, that's what falconry, in its full meaning, really is. That the bird chooses a multi-species um, partnership. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, yeah, so. Uh much to, to how this works and how those connections are forged. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Cy Montgomery, the author of many, many books, most recently The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. We're going to take another caller, and then I have a question that I think kind of in some ways follows up what you were just describing in the wake of the uh, previous caller's question. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Simon Montgomery. Hello. Yeah, is that me? Yeah, please go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, my name's Mike. I have several stories about hawks. But okay, let's hear your best one because we're running short on time, I'm afraid, Mike. So let's Well, hear, the let's... best one is a friend of mine was out walking his dog, and he found a hawk laying on the ground. He picked this thing up and took it home. Well, he put it in his bedroom, laid it out on a towel, and all was thinking about what he was going to do with it. Well, it was a goshawk, and it had knocked itself out while it was, you know, flying low along the ground. Mm. Uh, it awakened, and he had to close it into that room and call for help because it just kept attacking him every time he went toward it. Wow. And oh, my God. The second oh God. one is... I opened my back door, and I have a pool with a screen enclosure. Mm -hmm. And when I opened my back door, there was an explosion of black. What it was was a red-tailed hawk had chased a blackbird right into the pool enclosure. <gasps> and right as I opened that door, he hit that bird. Of course, there was just feathers everywhere. Wow. But I had to get the hawk up, and I used a net. And I waited for him to calm down. I used the net. I set him out in my backyard, and he just stood there and looked at me, and I looked at him. He was probably just gathering himself, and then he took off. And it was just a wild experience. Wow. I had to get a vacuum cleaner out to clean up all the uh, feathers from the blackbird. Uh, I'm sure. Sweep them up. Wow. Well, Mike, yeah. thank you. Thank you for calling, and thank you for those stories. I know you probably have others, but we do need to move along just because we're right. running short thank on time. Thank you much, and appreciate your guest. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye-bye. So, uh, Cy, kind of going back a little bit to just before Mike's call and sort of responding to the previous caller's thing, can you talk about, or, or maybe more to the point, elaborate on, kind of some of the personal conflicts that you felt as you were moving into the world of falconry? Um I mean, it just seemed like there were some real struggles that you articulated in the book about uh, what you were doing and kind of just your your, your overall sort of yeah, life. Yeah, you're and, right. You're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I was crazy in love with the, with being with these birds. And when Nancy asked me to be her apprentice, um, 
one, I I needed to find out, you know, could I take a bird out of the wild? Well, if I was going to give it a head start on a better life, I could do that. Okay. But then the next question was, I mean, everyone was telling me, look, you know, you you, you can be disabled. Your hands are are small. Your skin is thin. This is so. I didn't. That didn't bother me too much. But the two big stumbling blocks, which caused me to eventually not be an actual apprentice, one was I had chickens, and if if you're an apprentice, you have to take that hawk and build an aviary called a muse for it, and care for that hawk every day. Well. That hawk, he's got eyes like a hawk. He's going to notice all my my chickens and want to kill them. And I love my chickens. I knew them ever since they were tiny babies and slept in my sweater and were little egg-shaped pieces of down. And then the other thing is I travel a lot for my work, and sometimes I'm gone for months to some jungle or desert or cloud forest, and who's going to take care of the hawk then? Yeah. Well, my my husband did not want to do that. He said it would be like tending a loaded gun. So, as much as I wanted to be Nancy's apprentice and as grateful as I was for the honor of being asked, um, I did not do so, but continued to take lessons from her. And I I still I'm friends with a hawk up the street right now, um, who belongs to Henry Walters, who's a, a poet. And, translator and, and master falconer so i still have these birds in my life but not on our property and not in my care yeah no it's it's clearly something that uh you're you have to be kind of all in or really it's probably not going to work yeah it's it's kind of scarier than even getting married <laughs> <laughs> okay well i'll let you and your husband uh, take that discuss- discussion uh, further but uh so, Cy, we're sort of nearing the end of our time here, but it's uh, it's been great as always. Some other things I was hoping to get to, but we got some great calls uh, and questions and stuff uh, instead. So we'll uh, we'll we'll come back again. I'm sure talk another time. But we've been speaking with Cy Montgomery again. Her newest book is The Hawk's Way: Encounters with Fierce Beauty, and her website is Cy S Y Montgomery uh, dot com, and she's on social media as well. Sai, it was great pleasure speaking with you again, and uh, good luck on the book, which again, obviously, I really enjoyed, and again, it's a short, quick read for anybody thinking, hey, maybe I could do, read this. Yes, you can. You can read it in an afternoon or a quick evening. Oh, thank you so much, Duncan. I love talking with you, and I love your listeners and your callers. This was a blast. Oh, great. Always. Thank you so much, Sai. Thank you. Well, take care. Bye-bye now. In a moment, I'll speak with Lainey Jones, the singer-songwriter whose new album, Stories Up High, arrives next week. And not coincidentally, she plays an album release show at Tampa's Hoochin' Hive next Wednesday, May 18th. In her childhood, her companions included kangaroos, wallabies, and other exotic critters. More on that in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with this piece practically custom-made to follow the conversation I just had with Cy Montgomery. And that it's about falconry, or at least a falcon. This is Andy Ritchie with a piece called Balthazar. In today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. This is funny, though. Uh, somebody in my neighborhood a couple weeks ago posted a sign on a telephone pole for a lost falcon. <laughs> like the bird. They're like, we lost our falcon, help us. I'm like, I can't. I'm not the beast master. I can't summon wildlife from the sky. It's like, yeah. Like, if you lose your dog and you post a sign, like, yeah, there's a chance you get your dog back. But if you lose your falcon, 
It's gone, dude. Forever, because it can fly and it hates you. It's not gonna be hanging on the woods one day like, God damn it, I really miss that hood. Nobody puts a hood on me out here that makes me think I'm asleep. That sucks. It's like, these people are never gonna get their falcon back. I was like, well, maybe they'll get their falcon back. Because they're very smart when they made the poster. They put a picture of the falcon on the poster. Yeah, which is very helpful if you're the one looking for it, right? Because that way you don't show up at their doorstep with the wrong falcon. I think we've all been there before. It's incredibly embarrassing. For all three parties involved, really. Falcon's just like, oh, this is not my house. I don't know why the falcon's Jewish in this joke, but it's a Yiddish falcon. And then underneath the picture, they put the falcon's name, Balthazar. And there was a $300 reward for him too. I guess they're really expensive. So I'm like, whatever, I got nothing better to do this afternoon. I start walking up and on my block like, People are giving me spare change. <laughs> Poor kids touched in the head. That was a piece called Balthazar in today's Comedy Corner from the late, great Andy Ritchie, taken from his album King Ding-A-Ling. Now it's time to speak with singer-songwriter Lainey Jones, whose new record, Stores Up High, comes out May 20th, and she plays an album release show locally here at Hoochin' Hive next Wednesday, May 18, one week from today. So when she released her previous album, Rolling Stone dubbed her an artist you need to know, and uh, she grew up with animals in a way I think you could safely say you and I did not. This is Lainey Jones on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Lainey. Good morning, Duncan. Wow. No one's ever that enthusiastic speaking to me, so that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, I'm just pumped to be here, pumped to be talking about animals, one of my favorite subjects. Cool. And creatures. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to get into that in one sec, but just first, congrats on the new album, Stories Up High. I know it's not out officially till next week, but um, Friday, specifically the 20th, but I was uh, fortunate enough to hear it ahead of its release, and I really think it's terrific. So that's great, and of course, locally here in Tampa, we'll be doing Hooch and Hive show next Wednesday, May 18th, so that's the music side of things, but as you noted, the focus of this show is animals, and I understand you grew up amongst some unusual ones. Tell me about that. I did, yeah. Before I was born, my parents uh, found some wallabies in Connecticut, uh, so, yeah, there was, we had wallabies, uh, they ended up switching to the kangaroos, which are, you know, large creatures, so they're going to be a little more friendlier, uh, and we had ended up having, uh, the largest alme- albino mob of kangaroos in the world at one point, and we had, like, 30 of them. Wow. So they also had, like, other, cre- you know, fun animals, like, we had, uh, miniature donkeys, um, Phoenix Foxes, Kawada Mondays, uh, yeah, well, goats, uh, that's you know, not as, not as rare, but we yeah. did have the largest, like, I grew up in Mount Dora, Florida, and we actually did pull out the largest female alligator in the state of Florida in my backyard, because she, like, started, some of the goats started disappearing, because, yeah, you know, we got the goats originally, because we live kind of on a swampy marsh area, and you're not supposed to, like, you know, mow or anything. So in order to kind of keep it clean, go see everything. 
So wow. we have some goats out there, but uh, they are definitely starting disappearing. We're wondering if some people were barbecuing them or something, but it ended up the alligators were. Yikes. Wow. Well, so tell me, uh, what, what are, uh, I mean, there's, uh, what you just said raised so many questions, but let me just jump in with one. What, what are kangaroos like, like in terms of personality and temperament? What, I mean, most of us haven't hung out with the kangaroos. Oh, they're awesome. Like, they're, they're seriously one of the sweetest creatures. I'm sure Australian people wouldn't think that. Uh, but, yeah, no, we had one kangaroo. Her name was Sydney. Uh, she was retired from the Sydney Zoo. Uh, and I would go out there. I, I knew her since I was like a baby. So she, whenever time I would go out and do like the area, the big area where the kangaroos would hang out, we call it the roof pin. Uh, when I'd ever go out there, you know, it's like 10, 12, 11, she would come over to me, start hopping over and she'd like hug me cause they have arms and like kind of raccoon hands. And she would come over and hug me and start cleaning me. Wow. And if she had a, a baby in her pouch, she would, like, drop the baby out so we could, like, play with it and say hi. And Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always from a little kid uh, grabbing. So my my parent, my mom would bottle feed the kangaroos uh, so they'd be friendly and know us and stuff like that. And they need to be ball fed all the time. So uh, I would, but I would go and, like, we made these, like, pouches that they sewed up and stuff. And I would bring the kangaroo with like me in bed and just kind of be snuggling and, and hanging out. So they're, they're really sweet, wonderful creatures. That's really cool. And it's kind of uh, surprising in some ways. Uh, maybe it's just the product of the way some of these were, were raised and sort of bottle fed by your mom and stuff. But the, this describing like the one there that had, you know, a baby in its pouch and letting you sort of get close and hang out. I mean, that's so counterintuitive the way most moms, especially wild animal moms, are with their babies. If any, if anything is coming close, it could be perceived as a threat. Oh, absolutely. So with the Phoenix boxes, because they, the ones that we had from them, they're kind of like, I don't know if they're feral. I, I don't know how my parents got those. But, yeah, if you didn't actually rescue the babies, like rescue, I mean, term loosely, but uh, they would actually eat their, their young because they they didn't, you know, I feel, sounds so crazy and weird about that. But, like, the babies, though, were, like, the sweetest creatures, though. And it's just because, like, they knew you and they knew that, you know, you weren't going to hurt them and, and all that. I mean, like, Animals are just like people, really, in that sense, you know, if wow. it's, uh, you're a product of your environment. Yeah. So, um, Lainey, uh, looking back now, how would you say that, that you know, fairly extraordinary childhood um, with all those uh, interesting and unusual animals, how, how, how did that shape you in any way that you could point to now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it definitely made me a more sensitive person i think just because with animals you know they they aren't speaking but they are speaking in in their own way yeah uh and you really have to listen and be open to that and uh so i think it's it's really made me a person that i think to believe more in in the magic of the universe and yeah and, uh, and also too i mean uh when i was in like going into kindergarten i guess you know they asked kids the doc, you know, just to make sure, you know, all your marbles are there going into to school and stuff. 
And, uh, yeah, I, I, like, the, you know, doctor was asking, you know, oh, you know, what's, you know, uh, a roof and a fence or, 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 like, a pond or whatever. All my anim- my answers were very animal-related. Yeah. And then, like, when he was like, what is a fence? I was like, it holds in my kangaroos. <laughs> and uh, he learned, <laughs> I, like, I, did get, I, I was sent to get tested at, like, a medical facility yeah. for, like, a week to make sure I wasn't, like... Something's not right with Laney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. And uh, here's some, probably a bigger stretch, but any elements of all this that, that that may have cropped up in one way or another in your music and your songwriting at all? I mean, actually, funny enough, on my, my first record and, and writing, too, you know, uh, I told that story about my goat getting eaten by alligators. Okay. And, uh, you know, snakes and also, too, uh, like, four panthers and stuff. Yeah. So I have a, I have a song called Midnight Snack. Okay. Uh, <laughs> about my goaties getting eaten by creatures of the night Yikes. here in Florida. So, uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's certainly more, more, more direct than I was anticipating, but that's definitely a direct product for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's cool. Well, Lainey, we just about kind of reached the end of the time, but just want to say one more time, your brand new album, which, again, I really, really like, is Stories Up High. It's out next Friday, May 20th. Just prior to that, next Wednesday, a week from today, May 18th, you're at Hoochin Hive right here in Tampa, and um, your website is laney-jones.com. People can find out more or look at other tour dates if they're not in the area and want to see uh, where they can catch you and catch up with some of your information about music, if not animals. So, Laney, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Yeah, thanks so much, Duncan. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Coming up. On WNF Music Kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. A glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show, at the moment, is the prize for naming that animal tune. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. Let's name that animal tune. On Talking Animals on WMNF. If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your guests off air just after the show because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast and more. Meanwhile, Scott Elliott's up after NPR News Headlines. We'll see you next Wednesday on Talking Animals. Thanks.